Section 7 of The Symphony Since Beethoven by Felix Weingartner. Translated by Maud Barrows Dutton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Berlioz, like Schumann, opposed Wagner. In both cases we see the aversion of one great man to recognize a greater one. By no means a rare occurrence, but which causes us to remember that beneath highly talented natures like human weakness and error, and the sting at the sight of foreign superiority, torments also enlightened minds. If any artist be troubled by such feelings, let him look to one sublime example, to a man towering high above all other modern composers in this respect, to the venerable figure of Franz Liszt. How this man, who was himself so great, was always advancing other artists of a kindred nature and trying to spread abroad the fame of their works. How he took young genius and talent by the hand, supporting them with word and deed and always without the smallest advantage to himself. How often he absolutely neglected his own creations for the sake of others. All this is a matter of history. And I believe no one, even those who take exception to his compositions, will wish to rob him of the shining crown which unselfishness and noblest love have placed for all times upon his head. As a man, Liszt was the king of artists. As a composer, he surpasses Berlioz, because in the latter's symphonic work, in spite of all the free fancy, the outline of the old form is almost always visible, fettering his music, while Liszt wanders away from this form and thus often gives his work the character of improvisation. He starts directly from the poetical subject, from the program, and takes it alone as a guide. Sometimes he goes so far as to express certain events or conditions of mind in musical phrases, and places them side by side, as the program prescribes. It is true that Berlioz was his predecessor in this. I refer to the next to the last orchestral piece in Romeo and Juliet, entitled Romeo at the Tomb of the Capulets, Invocation, Awaking of Juliet, Frenzy of Joy and the First Effects of the Poison, Anguish of Death and Parting of the Lovers. Berlioz sought here to picture the details of the dramatic action, by fragments of melody, by accents, by combinations of chords and expressive figurations, and all with such clearness that one is able to follow the scene almost bar by bar. But this piece is generally omitted at concerts, because the impression it makes, even with the most perfect rendering, is absolutely confusing. Sometimes, even my veneration for Berlioz does not prevent me from saying this downright ludicrous. The cause lies here that a task is allotted music which it cannot perform. Were we not given through the title an indication of the subject of the drama, we certainly would not know what we were listening to we would receive the impression only of a senseless confusion of sounds. But the feeling of senselessness is not removed even when we do know from the title what images we are to bear in mind. Indeed, we are astonished to notice how clear and distinct the bare words of the title are compared with the music, which at other times is able to impress us much more powerfully than even an excellent word poem. We experience similar feelings also in listening to the orchestral recitative at the beginning of Romeo and Juliet, which is said to represent the arrival and interference of the prince. Only the tormenting impression in this case is soon over. Here we have reached the point where the true mission of music is revealed in all its splendor. 
here we see that it is an art which can never convey conceptions to us because it shows us the deepest reality of the world in the most subtle pictures and for this reason stands high above the other arts here we see that it is robbed of its majesty if the artist seeks to convey concepts by it as language does that it is debased and shorn of the subtle peculiarities of its being if he attempts to bind it bar by bar or episode by episode to a program music can interpret moods it can represent a mental state that some event has caused in us but it cannot picture the event itself footnote i refer here to the beautiful explanation of the nature of music found in both volumes of schopenhauer's die welt aus Willi und vorstellung musicians will not agree with certain details but taken as a whole the conception will never lose its significance for me End footnote. that is the task for poetry and in another sense for painting or sculpture if this task is attempted with music the effect is something the same as when one tries to speak a foreign language but little known to him the result is not only incomprehensible but also ridiculous in such cases music has entered into the above-mentioned false relation to the program and then it ceases to be music he who can do nothing more can in listening form in his imagination an idea of the piece of music it will not materially injure his receptive ability for a good piece of music stands on a much firmer much deeper foundation than the presentation of this or that event and speaks to us with much more power than anything else it tells us of things from the deepest depth of which that idea is only a copy only an apparition it unveils for us its secrets and makes them transparent therein is the great importance of music in the drama but the reverse to take as a subject an event be it physical or mental of dramatic or philosophical content and wish to express it through music in the exact order in which it happened the event i repeat and not forsooth its effect upon us is on the one hand a foolish and senseless undertaking because only words or in certain exceptional cases a painted or plastic representation possess this ability then the artist makes a mistake in the selection of his medium he lowers a lofty and eternal noble art to a service far beneath it music the language of the spirit of the universe is used as a means of expressing often what is ordinary and vulgar and in case it is adopted extensively for work of such style gives rise to a perversity of possible musical feeling which hinders the appreciation of true masterpieces i have too firm a faith in the constantly increasing power of music to believe in the lasting success especially in this direction of the newer endeavors hence my often criticized coolness towards a certain kind of modernity although the orchestral piece out of romeo and juliet prepares the way for liszt's creations to a certain extent still the latter has given us works of incomparably greater value than this piece for in many of his compositions he succeeded in finding an artistic form which represents them as finished creations and these same compositions are not contrary to the nature of music although each follows a definite program but this form which liszt invented is fitted exclusively to the poetical subject of each particular work and would be quite senseless if used with another program 
Think, for example, of Mazipa, one of Liszt's most famous productions, a wild movement soaring almost to madness, pictures the death ride of the hero, a short andante, his downfall, the following march, introduced by a fanfare of the trumpets and increasing to highest triumph, describes his elevation and coronation. Now think of his symphonic poem, Orpheus, the form of which really consists only of a great crescendo, followed by a great diminuendo. Orpheus strikes the golden strings of his lyre, and all nature listens with devotion to the wondrous sounds. With majestic strides the god passes by us, charming the world with his personality and his playing. The tones of his lyre grow weaker. Father and father recedes the heavenly figure. At last it vanishes entirely from sight. The disposition of this piece of music, commencing with the softest pianissimo, growing to the most powerful volume of sound, and then gradually dying away again, is truly quite justified both by itself and in its connection with the program. But a similar piece with the title Mazipa would be quite impossible. Yet I feel certain that were we to hear Mazipa and Orpheus without any titles, we should recognize in the former a painfully stormy element which breaks down and immediately afterwards rises again victoriously, and in the latter a gentle and majestic being who first approaches and then recedes, without needing necessarily to think of either Mazepa or Orpheus. Our fancy will be powerfully stimulated by the title, but not uncommonly fettered. The chief thing will always be the musical feeling, and not the petty interpretations of this or that passage, because, and in fact especially for this reason, a positively musical power dwells within these pieces which I have mentioned, and because they owe their origin to musical feeling and inspiration, and not merely to intellectual illustrations. This kind of program music I defend as energetically as I condemn the other, namely, formless extemporization on supposed underlying subjects. When Liszt, for instance, in his symphonic poem, The Ideala, endeavors to interpret musically certain fragments of Schiller's poem, in due succession, and then tries to weld these renderings together into one movement, when he even goes so far as to use for headings the different parts of the poem, which he wishes the listener to imagine during the music, so that only those who are provided with the score can know just what he is to imagine at any particular moment, the result is that the music produces only a lame effect, because it cannot freely develop according to its nature, but is a priori bound to the successive fragments of the poem that is, to a series of conceptions. Compare this to the overture of the first version of Fidelio, the first Leonora overture, though always falsely called the second. Its musical value does not attain to the great one, but it is a true operatic overture because certain important moments of the drama are represented in it. Florestan's imprisonment, Leonora's courageous endeavor to release her husband, her searching and inquiring, her meeting and her fight with Pizarro, her victory, a short retrospect of the horrors overcome, with feelings of gratitude towards God, and finally, the exaltation of the happily reunited pair. See how well Beethoven, with all his dramatic clearness, guarded in this piece the symphonic character, and with what musical means he knew how to depict the scenes. I would point out that the grand and sudden entrance of C minor in the place where the usual repeat of the first part in C major is expected 
it is intended to picture the moment of the highest danger, Leonora's meeting with Pizarro. Notice how naturally, and without any violent effort, the reminiscences from the opera, the passage where Pizarro falls back before Leonora's pistol, are introduced. I should like to select this overture as a model to demonstrate just how far a certain program is compatible with music, without injuring the latter in its very nature. Mendelssohn's Eberdi's Overture and Schumann's Manfred Overture were occasioned by poetical images and events. At one time, the endeavor to express such things in music led to a coincidence of the new classical and the modern schools. Indeed, composers did not seem at first aware that there were two schools to be represented, as we may see from Schumann's relations with Berlioz and Liszt. It was only with the appearance of the totally abstract Brahms and the rising of Wagner, which soared far above all others, that people began to feel that there were two schools. When the consciousness of Wagner's power dawned upon them, the new classical school, feeling that its last hours were come, played the trump card, Brahms. The schools were well-defined again, and today there are so many that everyone feels called upon to work for one or the other. The man who belongs to no school naturally arouses suspicion everywhere with his productions, and can scarcely rely upon him the sane judgment of the people, which, in spite of all misdirection, finally, though often at late day, finds out the truth. Here I must warn against a grievous error which I believe I still discover in many modern compositions, namely the confusing of the dramatic with the symphonic style, referencing once more to Wagner's treatise on the application of music to the drama, I would add that with a few exceptions, a characteristic mark of all symphonic themes is their breadth and their special melodious character, while the themes of a musical drama are distinguished by their pregnancy, and thus often by their significant brevity. On none of Wagner's themes, not even the very simplest, could a symphonic movement be built up. On the other hand, the first theme of Beethoven's Eroica, for instance, consisting of twelve bars, not a four, as many seem to think, the melodies of Beethoven's slower movements, indeed the themes of any true symphony, could not be used in opera. The dramatist's inventive gifts are excited to production by quite other factors than are the symphony writers. Persons and events which are represented bodily on the stage suggest to him those pregnant and plastic motives which reveal the significance of the events, often like lightning, but which are much more expressive than words. But moods are of an inward and contemplative nature. The mental reaction after great deeds or events, real or fictitious, which do not require realization by the drama, inspire the symphony writer to create. His work is like the living, out of his very being in music. Ein sich ausleben seines Wesens in music. Hence the breadth of the themes, and the true instrumental melody, which is rarely possible in the drama. If it is admissible to designate the orchestral part of the musical drama as symphonic, that is, as built up in ingenious polyphony, then a symphony may in turn be called dramatic, if the underlying moods are very passionate and variable. The whole world is a great drama, and music shows us its innermost being. In this sense, music itself is dramatic, as we can recognize to our satisfaction in our great hero Beethoven, 
to whom we always turn when we wish really to understand what music is. But the symphonic quality of a musical drama must be taken in a concrete sense, and the dramatic nature of a symphony movement in a metaphysical sense. And composers should keep this difference constantly in mind, so as to avoid the confusing of the two, which can have no other effect than giving rise to pieces which will look more like fragments of operas than symphonies, or, on the other hand, the airing of symphonic pieces in operas where they do not belong. It is well worth noticing that Wagner points to the necessity of keeping strictly to the same key, unless there is an imperative reason for leaving it. He explains also that this necessity applies in a higher degree to the symphony, because daring modulations, which in the drama are absolutely required by the action, would be unintelligible in the symphony. There is scarcely another principle in music which is so sinned against today as this one, which lay in the natures of all great masters, Wagner included. Most of Bruckner's symphonies, for instance, suffer from incessant and senseless modulations, so that often one cannot tell why one is called in E-flat major and another in C minor, since only the final bars of a movement coincide with the key of the beginning, while all the other parts wander, without rule, through all the remaining keys. But I do not think Wagner is right when he rejects the varying of a theme in his symphony, the psychological dramatic variation, to use my expression, of a theme in his symphony, as a far-fetched effect. Is it not the sudden entrance of the minor key, to which I referred in Beethoven's first Leonora Overture, a variation of this kind? If in Liszt's Mazepa, the terrible increasing speed of the death ride is expressed through gradual, rhythmical, let us say almost breathless shortening or condensations of the main theme, from 6-4 time through 4-4, and 3-4 time to 4-4, if at the close of the march this theme is introduced in a triumphant manner, then these variations are not the result of far-fetched effects, but a very genuine power of expression. As in the musical drama, these variations are determined by the action. In the symphony, they must submit themselves to the laws of symphonic form, be it the old ones or the new ones, which a composer incited by some poetical inspiration has discovered. Should I be asked for the rule of a new form of this kind? I confess I should have to reply in the words of Hans Sachs. First make your rule, then follow it. Indeed, this following, this relentless and consistent keeping of the rule one has made, this never deviating until all is clear, this working with the sweat of one's brow until the gradual growth corresponds to one's inspiration, without the labor and sweat being apparent, this is what in the end produces a work of art. There is no merit in departing from the old form unless a definite object is attained. It is absolutely senseless to designate those keeping to the old form as reactionaries. The neo-Germans, the revolutionists, forget that in their zealous campaign against form, they are just as much Philistines as are the pseudo-classicists, with their tirade against innovations. All depends entirely upon what the work as a whole has to express, and the form will be merely the adequate mode of expression for the content. Of course, this applies only to masters, and not to every agreeable dabbler who thinks he can conceal his inability by a pathetic program, 
and more than this, make us believe that it was his intention that the entire piece should hobble along in a confused, mutilated fashion. Other of Liszt's works suffer from the same defect as does the Ideale, which also are inferior, because less significant in their power of invention, as, for example, Hamlet, Prometheus, and Heroid for Neighbor. There is a certain extemporaneous quality which sometimes approaches raggedness, which is peculiar to most of Liszt's works. I might say that, just as in Brahms, a meditative element predominates, so a rhapsodic feature gains the upper hand with Liszt and becomes a disturbing element in his weaker works, and I am sorry to say, even in the Mountain Symphony, which is so rich in beautiful details. Masterpieces in which the rhapsodic element ascends to its greatest and most impressive power are, besides Orpheus and Mazepa, already mentioned, Hungaria, Festklanger, Die Honenschlecht, a fantastic piece of uncanny and elemental power, Le Preludes, and above all, the great symphonies on Faust, Dante's Divine Comedy. The Faust symphony is not intended to embody musically Goethe's poem, but gives, as its title promises, three character sketches, Faust, Gretchen, and Mephistopheles. The third movement shows us with what art and imagination Liszt has used and developed the dramatic psychological variation of a theme, the inventor of which I have already designated as Berlioz. Mephistopheles is the spirit who evermore denies, for the principle of his actions is, for whatever has come into life deserves to be reduced to naught again. Hence, Liszt could not give him a theme of his own, but built up the whole movement from caricatures of previous themes, particularly from those belonging to Faust. For this reason, ignorant critics have been even more ready to reproach Liszt than they did before Berlioz for lack of invention. I ask, if our great masters have built up long movements by manifold variations of themes of a few bars, why should not composers today do the same if a perceptible poetical thought is his guiding principle? Is there no invention in these characteristic variations, and forsooth, invention of the same degree that old masters possessed? And just the last movement of the Faust symphony best reveals to us Liszt's deep insight into the true nature of music. When the infernal, diabolical spirit has risen to its most brilliant power, there appears as if soaring in bright clouds the main theme of the Gretchen movement in virgin beauty. By this motive, the power of the demon is shattered, and it sinks back into nothingness. The poet could let Gretchen perish, and even become a transgressor. The musician, in accordance with the ideal, subtle nature of his art, preserved for her the exalted heavenly form. Mighty trombone sounds are heard through the discordant hell music as it dies away. A male chorus softly intones Goethe's sublime words of the chorus mysticus. All that is transitory is only illusion. And in the clearly recognizable notes of the Gretchen theme, continues a tenor voice. The ever-feminine draweth us on. Das ewig weibliche sieht uns hinan. One can identify this tenor voice with Goethe's Dr. Marianus and imagine Gretchen transfigured into the Mater Gloriosa. One might also recall Faust's words when he beholds Gretchen's image in the vanishing clouds like a pure soul. Still fairer grows the form, dissolves not, but to higher realms of air ascends, and bears with it my nobler self, my heart, away.
sewing great pieces of music, golden threads, spun from sunshine, are woven lightly and airily between the music and the inspiring poetry, making both more beautiful, but confining neither. Still more unified and more powerful than the Faust symphony is the tone poem to Dante's Divine Comedy, with its vivid representation of the torments of hell and its purgatory, which gradually rises into the highest sphere of pure sentiment. In both these works, Liszt is given the highest art of which he is capable. They can be compared only with the creations of the great masters. They mark not only the highest point in Liszt's work, but also, with Berlioz's symphonies, are the ripest fruit thus far of artistic program music. It is gratifying to know that Berlioz and Liszt's compositions are constantly gaining ground for themselves and becoming more generally appreciated, in fact, are even awakening enthusiasm, although a large number of critical reviews of their works have taken the occasion to grumble over them or insult them with their traditional air of superiority. The pseudo-classicists break their noses, and the ultra-moderns would like to treat both of these great masters as surmounted obstacles, as steps now passed over in reaching the state of perfection where the new gods now sit throned. Idle endeavor. Time gives its potent judgment without regard to the pygmies which are swelling themselves up and strutting about in their narrow nothingness, and already it is being seen that Berlioz and Liszt are, with Wagner, the great stars in the new musical epic, the heroes of the last half of the nineteenth century, just as Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, Weber, and Schubert were the heroes of the first. Apart from these two symphonies, each consisting of several movements, Liszt's orchestral works have, as a rule, but one movement, and are entitled symphonic poems. This name is a very happy one, and seems to me to express in two words just the law, perhaps the only law which a piece of music must obey if it is to have a right to exist. Let it be a poem, that is, let it spring from some poetical source, from some impulse of the spirit which the author may convey to the public by title and program, or may withhold. But let it also be symphonic, which is here, speaking in general terms, synonymous with musical. Let it have a definite form, either one taken from the old masters or a new one, developed from its content and corresponding to it. Lack of form in any art is unpardonable, and in music can never be excused by a program, or what by the composer imagined. Liszt's symphonic works stand for a great first step along a new path. Any writer who will go farther on this way must take good care not to imitate Liszt's weaknesses, that raggedness of conception which he often displays, but to compose pieces which are more than tone illustrations of programs. End of section 7.